If you're a business owner who wants more business, you need a great website. It's where people first interact with your business. That's where BrandBuddy out of Pontiac, Illinois comes in. BrandBuddy makes your entire online experience a breeze. Whether it's building a fully functional and visually stunning website with custom tools and buttons, or designing sophisticated advertising campaigns, BrandBuddy is the one-stop shop for your business. At BrandBuddy, an expert developer will listen to your needs and visions before building what you need. If you want to boost business and grow your your online presence, call or text Brand Buddy today at 815-743-3074. Ken Mishka, founder, president, CEO, and garbage man at Epiphany Farms Hospitality Group. Thank you so much for coming on today, sir. Thanks for having me. Hey, it Appreciate is my it. pleasure. So everyone knows Epiphany Farms. Everyone in the area knows Epiphany Farms. You guys do so much. So how about you clear the air a little bit? What is it exactly that you do? What are your titles? And what does Epiphany Farms do? That is a great question. Um, my name is Ken Mishka. I'm the founder and president. I pretty much fill any, any role, but I think my most important job is, um, helping to lead the, the culture and the vision for the, the group as a whole. Uh, my passion lies in growing food. I spend uh, about, probably about, 70% of my yearly efforts in uh, growing about 20 acres of organic vegetables. I manage a 70-acre farm and estate. Epiphany Farms has currently four main restaurants, um, but I, I kind of feel like we have five with, with the farm and the amount of food we serve out there. I'm blessed, living a dream. I have a, an amazing group of partners, uh, my wife, Nina Mishka, and um, Chef Stu Hummel, with, who's our vice president, and uh, Jack of all trades. So I think my official title is uh, President CEO. I'm currently the executive chef at Harmony Korean Barbecue. I've been there now for four weeks, and I'll be there for another six weeks placing a new chef. And then uh, I think my next trip, my next stop is to uh, Epiphany Farms to help out with a few things, and then we'll be building and doing some remodeling at the farm starting in February. Wow. You're a young guy. How old are you? I'm now 39. 39, man. You're not even 40 and you're doing all this stuff. That yeah. is incredible. You said four restaurants, but might as well be five if yeah. you include the farm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so our main flagship is Epiphany Farms Restaurant, downtown Bloomington. It's on the main floor of what was Central Station Plaza or Central Station. It was originally built in 1901 as a uh, the central fire station for Bloomington. It, it was turned into a restaurant in the late 70s, early 80s. It was actually a dinner theater to start for the first few years. Um, Artie Nauer was one of the guys that created that. And then it turned into a restaurant. It was an iconic restaurant for over 30 years. 2011, um, we actually took it over and I started consulting there. And, um, I'd like to say that we, we turned it around and, and got Front Street moving in the right direction. Wow. Okay. And what are the other restaurants then that you own? On the second floor of that restaurant, it's Anju Above. That was our second concept. Anju means bar snacks in Korean. It's a fun tapas style. Uh, battle of two cuisines, sushi versus pizza, has ramen, wings, um, donuts. It, it's the it's the coolest restaurant I think I've ever been to. I love it. It's it's a really fun time. Um, had friends help us open it. We opened it, it. I think about seven or eight years ago now. And but Epiphany Farms and Andre have kind of evolved to be a food hall. So now wherever you eat, whether it's upstairs, downstairs, or on the patio, you can order from all the menus. We also have a, a secret restaurant down the street called Bakery and Pickle. It's between Fat Jack's and Night Shop. It's a Prohibition era speakeasy, and it uh, it relaunched uh, a couple months ago. And it, it's a really cool spot. You walk into this closed antique shop, and you find the book, and we say you got to push beyond. 
and you push the book and the wall opens and you walk into this like iconic historic bar and it's got a cool vibe and you know we got a great team over there chef blake and peter they do a wonderful job so there is no place like that elsewhere in all of central illinois as far as i know i've never heard of anything like that in the area at all that is truly incredible and for people listening who've never heard of what's the name of this place again well it's it's a speakeasy but it's called bakery and pickle what is a speakeasy a speakeasy is um, an establishment that's going after the original restaurants and bars that were a- around during the Prohibition era. So when it was made illegal for alcohol, these secret spots started to, to pop up. Over the years, the first one that I recollect was when I was living in New York. There's this one called PDT, Please Don't Tell. And you would basically go into this establishment. There was a phone booth in the establishment. You go into the phone booth. You pick up the phone. And then the side of the phone booth would open up and you'd walk into the bar. And only people that knew would know. And it was a secret entrance. So nowadays when you go to a big city, you look up speakeasies and there's typically like three to seven or eight or nine of them in the area that are hidden gems. And they've evolved them. They're all over the world. Wherever I go, whether it's Paris or Korea or Japan or New York, San Francisco, Austin, Texas, like I'm always looking for the speakeasy locations, right? You go in through the back alleyway, you you walk through the back of the house, you go through the the, the housekeeping, and then all of a sudden you're like in the dopest bar in town, right? So we always wanted to open one of those. We didn't like the proximity to all the the mess of late night downtown Bloomington, Um, that, that college drunken like bus dropped off kind of feel like it doesn't really speak to what we wanted to provide for Bloomington so we're like you know what let's just hide it let's not let anyone know about it so on a Saturday night you walk out of the speakeasy and literally there's like a line of like 50 college students that have no clue what is going on in there and uh, it's nice to have that back open we closed it uh, during COVID and then we chose not to reopen it as like a casual takeout because we wanted to preserve the the like the iconic feel of the space. We didn't want it to be like, you know, kind of uh, just like casualized or whatever. So we just relaunched that a couple months ago and it's, it's in, it's going well. Our other newest restaurant is Harmony Korean barbecue. It's on South veterans parkway. Harmony means grandmother in Korean. And that is a concept that pays homage to um, the Korean culture and the heritage of my wife, Nanam. So ever since I've met Nanam, I've not only fallen in love with her, but I've also fallen in love with the Korean heritage. And, you know, we eat a Korean diet mostly. I, I value the Korean. And um, now for people that don't know, your wife is from South Korea. Yeah, Nanam is from Seoul. And we met in Las Vegas. Uh, Chef Stu as well. We had met in Las Vegas, but he's from Pennsylvania. And uh, I think the last semester that I was in um, hospitality school at UNLV, I met Nanam and I just didn't leave her side. We were in two classes together. Uh, she graduated, got hired with Samsung, moved back to Seoul. I moved here, started Epiphany Farms, uh, got my first partner, Mike Mustard, to move here in March of 2009. And then the next day I flew to Korea. I spent a month there. I convinced her family to let her marry me. She quit her job at Samsung, moved here, and then um, helped me uh, incorporate the business. And we've been you know, partners you know, ever since. We've had Three children that were all, you know, born and raised at the farm. And uh, and she's actually like the secret weapon behind Epiphany Farms Hospitality. You spoke before we started recording briefly about her responsibilities, and they are many. Could you inform yeah. the listeners and the viewers a little bit about what your wife, Nanam, does? Um, Nanam, like, I think is like kind of like our brand, per- I don't want to say protector, but like brand ambassador. She She does everything on the admin side. She oversees everything from, you know, from the culture, from the design, 
um, and you know, whether it's graphic design, web development, uh, anything really, she does all the finance, she does all the legal, um, she does the entire HR department. She does all the technology. She oversees all of that. She can do any position in the company. And I think that's actually one of the key things with the three owners Epiphany, you know, at Epiphany Farms is that at any time we're, we're never like enslaved to managers that can do, they're the only ones that can do the job. Um, we actually can do every job and anytime we step into those roles and, and our leadership style is kind of like in the trenches, shoulder to shoulder, working with them, you know, not necessarily them working for us. Uh-huh. And maybe that's why you've had the success that you do. Maybe that's something that a lot of other restaurants just in the industry don't do. They're not in the trenches with their their workers. I've worked in the restaurant industry a lot as a server. And sometimes at different places, you really see the divide between the managers and the workers. And it absolutely makes people mad. Well, yeah, I, I, what I don't think people understand is just that like hospitality in general, a lot of times you're sacrificing yourself for someone else. And so because you're in a space where you're always providing guest services and you're always like doing things for other people, sometimes you don't put yourself first. And so hospitality in general has sometimes some like really dark negative aspects to it. Um, it becomes very, you know, so long story short, when we first started consulting at Central Station at when that restaurant existed, I was only there for a few hours and I could tell that the place was consuming itself. You know, the employees were not inspired. They were there for their own reasons. They were just looking for cash and, and moving away. They, there was a lot of abuse. There was a lot of verbal abuse. There was a lot of drug abuse. You could tell that there was a lot of alcohol consumption. Like it's just like a typical, you know, shitty hospitality restaurant or hospitality vibe. And, um, you know, with Epiphany Farms, the idea was like, can we provide purpose? You know, is it more than a meal? Is it, you know, is the dinner table represent something that is far greater um, than what most people, you know, take take a look at it? You know, and that was the epiphany, like the sudden moment of insight that you can provide a, a different way through food. Right. And so inspiring the world, you know, is using the dinner table as a platform for social change, basically, is what Epiphany Farms existence is all about. You know, I think most of the world's problems can be solved by the way that not only at the dinner table, like whether it's uh, governance, global governance, where we're working together, whether it's the the health of the environment, the way that we're treating the soil, the water, the air, whether it's the health of ourselves, what we're putting in ourselves, for all the way from the the food that we're consuming to the additives, to the chemicals, to preservatives. You know, our skin is our largest organ, yet we lather it up with things that are going to give us cancer. And it's like Hippocrates said that you know, let food be thy medicine, let medicine be thy food. And that is something that we don't really necessarily value as much as we should. And as a chef growing up and learning about like, what does a restaurant mean and what should a restaurant be? You know, what is the meaning of a restaurant? It's a place for restoration. It's not a place for rest. Um, being a restaurateur, it's actually pronounced restoratoire. And so when we go to these food service establishments, they should be providing us health, nutrition, nutrients, you know, minerals. And over the last 150 years, it's like, we're, 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 I don't know, we're not, we're not getting what we should. We're not getting the nutrients and the, and the minerals and the health that we need. And we're not valuing the importance of the dinner table as much as we should. And so that was the, the idea behind Epiphany Farms, you know, that's, that's actually grow the food, connect the dots, make it, you know, one big cycle, let's save all the food waste, let's bring it all back to the farm, let's create the fertility, let's make the compost, let's apply to our gardens. And then let's continue to bring in food to our restaurants that is healthier and healthier and healthier every single year and cleaning, you know, leaving the land a better place for the next generation, but really taking it to heart. 
what a fantastic perspective on what you're doing. You're quoting Hippocrates in your this discussion about your restaurants. It's obvious that you have a philosophical approach to what you're doing, and I am here for it. Mm. I love it completely. <laughs> you mentioned a lot of things there, that we put things on our skin without giving a care about what it's going to do to our bodies later on. My girlfriend and I, she is a nurse in oncology, actually, so she's working with cancer patients all the time. And she talks about how insane it is how much stuff we put on our body and in our body, despite knowing that it has known carcinogens inside of it. It's mind-boggling. And we're speaking about philosophy in a little bit. Why do you do this? How did you get your start in the restaurant industry? And why do you care so much about quality ingredients, the dining experience, bringing people together in the right ways for the right reasons? Mm. Where did this all begin and how to become this? Uh, I, I, it became from the environment that I was raised in watching my mom and dad start a business and having a small business become, you know, relatively successful through middle school and high school. My mom and dad were always throwing big parties. They were always doing company Christmas parties. They were doing, you know, uh, summer picnics. We were having big, you know, family reunions. And I'd watch my mom, you know, always meticulously like prepare the food and make sure the house was perfect and invite everyone into her home. And, you know, just this amazing gracious example of hospitality and uh, my mom and dad would travel a lot and I you know started to throw parties and I started to cook for my friends and I started to cook for team gatherings and I was actually grounded when I was in eighth grade going into my freshman year of high school and to get out of the punishment my mom was like I come to Wilton cake decorating classes with me and if we spend more time together then you're going to be better off and uh, we went to this Wilton, Wilton cake decorating class at, at Michael's and uh, at that night we were piping borders and flowers and my mom was struggling and, and here I was like just pumping it out I was like I love this like I can't draw I can't write I'm a horrible I'm like I'm, I, I don't feel like I'm a good student but I, I love food I love cooking so I started cooking at uh, what was called the Jumers the Chateau it was a restaurant called La Radish Rouge uh, I worked there in their pantry and their bakery. I was a prep cook there. Um, my home economics teacher from high school recommended that I go to the school in New York uh, for culinary arts. I looked up the best school in the world. I applied there. I went to culinary arts school like three weeks out of high school. And uh, I graduated there. I did my internship at the longest running five star five diamond in Colorado Springs called the Broadmoor. I worked there and I got a taste of like five star, five diamond, high end. What does that mean? Five star, five diamond. They're basically like, uh, just, just rating scales, uh, for different lodging facilities. So five stars in the hotel world is the highest. Um, and so that means that you have the highest level of guest services and amenities, uh, that are available in the world. And this specific resort had never lost a star diamond since, since its inception. Um, it was actually a lodge that was created for natural healing, uh, in the high elevation of Colorado Springs. And, um, I was pretty, in fact, I, I was like, oh, I want to go learn there. I want to start, at, you know, at the, at like a resort. And I went to the butcher shop. And I worked in the butcher shop for like a month. And then I asked uh, the executive chef of the hotel if I could move to the steakhouse to learn how to cook meats. And then I went to this restaurant called The Tavern. And I, I was their grill cook. I moved back to New York. I graduated. I convinced five of my friends to move to Las Vegas and to go to hospitality school at UNLV. At the time, Cornell University was number one and UNLV was number two. But the president of the hospitality school in Cornell had just moved to Las Vegas. 
And I was, it was in the beginning, it was uh, 2004. And it was like the beginning of the boom of the celebrity chef in Vegas. And so there was tons of amazing oh, restaurants man. opening. You were there at the right time then. Absolutely. And I, I, had, uh, I, I was turning 21. So I went from New York to Vegas. I came home for the summer and I went to the local farmer's market in Downs. I met Dave and Karen Barron, who live in Ellsworth, and they invited me to their farm. And I went to their their giant garden, and we went through the forest, and he showed me ginseng and wild mushrooms. We went through his garden. I dug potatoes and pulled carrots. I harvested peaches. I I was I would go to his farm that summer, and I was so blown away by all the things you can grow here in McLean County. I couldn't believe it. I only thought we can grow, grow like corn and soybeans and wheat, alfalfa. And, but anyways, I, I went to, I was going to school in Vegas. I, I left and went to school in Vegas. And my goal in Vegas was to get a degree, but also to help open restaurants. I wanted to learn how to open restaurants. I don't want to work for the best chefs in the world. So I first started working for, uh, Chef Thomas Keller. At the time, Thomas Keller, um, had the best restaurant in the United States called the French Laundry. Uh, he also has Per Se in New York City. And I went and worked at his restaurant in the Venetian called Bouchon. And so I started at Bouchon as a prep cook and I worked in their bakery. Uh, I then went to a restaurant at Caesar's Palace called Bradley Ogden's. Bradley Ogden's was best new restaurant, James Beard. And it was like kind of like the first true farm to table uh, in a popular space, like kind of like Chez Panisse or any of the California cuisines. But Bradley Ogden's like Bradley Ogden is an iconic chef from California. I worked there when I was working there. We were buying all these really, really expensive baby vegetables and microgreens and i was like man i was like i can grow these like this is easy like these are just beets and radishes and they're just sprouted like i bet they only live for two weeks so i started experimenting and growing microgreens in my apartment and i started selling them to caesar's palace and i thought i was gonna really do, yeah I in thought, your apartment you were selling to caesar's palace yeah, I was selling, your little vegetables yeah um not only for, to my chef at caesar's palace and i was using them on my station and so then when I was plating up these appetizers and I was garnishing them, I would garnish them with these like bull's blood beet and, you know, purple radish and all these cool microgreens that I was, I was able to produce for pennies. And we were buying them from a farm in Ohio and shipping them all the way to Vegas. I was like, this is crazy. Long story short, like the chefs saw the efforts that I was putting in and they saw how far I was going to make beautiful food. And I loved it. I was falling in love with culinary arts and I was working full time and going to school, you know, crazy. I would, I'd sign up for like six or seven classes, go to the first day. I'd sum up the teachers. I'd figure out which teacher like wasn't going to work with my schedule. So I'd drop one or two classes and then I'd end up passing four. But I was working 60 hours a week as a sous chef, right? Like around Vegas. And I, I was really just, just crushing it. My half the guys I moved to Vegas with. Um, went in the nightclubs and then the other half was stayed in restaurants. And so I was working in these restaurants and I was studying. Uh, I was promoted. Chef Adam, um, Adam Sobel promoted me. They were, the task was to open up the most expensive restaurant in Las Vegas, uh, a three Michelin star restaurant called Guy Savoie. Uh, Adam went to Paris, studied there for months, came back. I was the first employee. I started picking up these chefs at the airport, bringing them to Caesar's Palace, and they were doing chef tastings to build the team, right? And then when we get like a month before opening, Chef Adam gave me my position, and I was like the head of the cooks. I was saucier. So I was the highest cook right before being a sous chef. And so I helped open Guy Savoie. Um, you know, we bought 110 pounds of black truffles to start our opening inventory. Like we had all of the frills and like, it was a beautiful, like the best of the best. Like our oven was like a half a million dollars, like just the oven. Right. 
But so I worked there for a year. Um, then I ended up leaving Guy Savoie and I ended up opening up a restaurant for Nick Lachey in Paris Hilton with Chef Adam at the Luxor. And then I ended up graduating, but, uh, and starting at 50 Farms. But when I was at Guy Savoie, I read a book uh, called Omnivore's Dilemma and I was starting to get into uh, environmentalism. I was starting to get into sustainability and I, I read this book and um, Omnivore's Dilemma is a life changing book. And it was the first book that, to my recollection, exposed the industrialization of the food system. One more time, this book was called what? Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Pollan. And this book is an iconic book. Anyone that, you, that has read this book has changed their life. And so I read this book and it talks about how the, the farm starts, you know, in the Midwest, the corn, the soybeans go to the feedlot, the feedlot then, you know, goes to our table. It talks about the consolidation of our food system. It talks about all these giant companies that are actually controlling our food and all these bad issues. And then, so like about halfway through the book, it's like, but okay, so what's, what's the solution? And it's called omnivore's dilemma because after you learn all this, you're like, Oh my God, the human humanity has like a huge dilemma. Right. So then they go to this farm in swoop, Virginia called Polyface, And it's the world's now he's the most famous farmer, right? Joel Salatin. And so I read about Salatin's work and I'm like mesmerized. I'm like, Oh my God, like the cattle rotate on the pasture. Um, they, the, mm. the chickens follow the cattle. It's super regenerative. It's super sustainable. It's super healthy. Like as a chef, like, that's the food that I want. So I learned that there was this like example of like amazing production. And so I started to, to take invitations from the people I was buying food from. I'm like, Hey, do you have a farm? I was like buying the best food in the world. I was like, can I come and see your systems? Can I come see your farm? And can I visit? And so I was going and visiting all these farms all over the country and all over the world. And I, you know, I was coming up with this idea for epiphany. Like what happens if I started a hospitality group and I go back home and I, I make this the, the basis of, of our, our production. We actually grow the food and sell it to the restaurants and so tell inspire me people. A little bit about just so farms, the mm -hmm. way that the current restaurant scene and the food scene is doing it some for some reason doesn't work. And it doesn't surprise me. It's like you can't have thousands and thousands of chickens and cows maybe in one building and have a bunch of farmland that's you're growing corn just to feed to those in. I don't know really how it all works at mm -hmm. all. But it's not hard to imagine there are some problems with how it's done currently and most Absolutely. popularly. Oh, yeah. So maybe tell me a little bit about how it's being done wrong mm. and how you're maybe doing it right. Okay. So I think that the the first issue, and this kind of is explained in Omnivore's Dilemma pretty, pretty easily. Um, we had one, like before the Industrial Revolution, when the uh, the economy was mostly agrarian, where people were actually living on the land and living from the land, um, they would have herbivores like cattle, right? They'd have sheep, they have goats. Um, they would they would till the land, they would produce food, but all the nutrients were staying on the farm. Over time, as farms became bigger, as we started to ship nutrients and, and food off of our farm, and then with the creation of conventional agriculture, which it first started in World War One when we created bombs, um, we, we used ammonia to create bombs, and then we ended up developing like tanks and new technologies for fighting the war. Then after we got through the wartime, a lot of the technological advancements we used for production of food. So farms became much bigger. Um, we started to use the tr bigger tractors. We started to use bigger inputs. We, um, we actually, with the 
invention of ammonia fertilizers, we realized that, oh, wow, we don't necessarily need the animals and the manure from the herbivores. We can just put this refined nutrient on the, the food and it's going to grow really, really well. And so over mm. time, we had this like kind of self-sustaining, harmonious, sustainable system. But then we divided them and we put and we created two problems. So we put all the animals in, in big buildings and which is probably in the short term better because they're not in the elements they're they're inside um, they're protected but then all of these things start to evolve when you put a bunch of animals in one little building you know there's a lot of disease a lot of sanitation issues there's not enough live biology to to handle it you have these giant cities of animals you know pigs chickens cattle and all of those nutrients are are volatile. They're either going to go in the air and you're going to smell them or they're going to go in the water and they're going to go to our lakes and our rivers, our streams, our ocean. They're going to create the dead zones. And then also now, since we took all the animals off of the farms and they're in buildings, we no longer have the nutrients that the, that the ground needs for the crops. So now we need to spray them or we need to fertilize them by injecting ammonia and fertilizing with either urea or an anhydrous ammonia in the form of basically liquid nitrogen. And most of that doesn't stay in the soil and is utilized. So anything extra gets into the waterways, goes through the rivers and the creeks, to the ponds, to the oceans, and it also creates a pollution and dead zone. So we used to have all the nutrients on the farm and being being recycled and, and you know used. And now we have these chemical inputs. Well, once you start to have these chemical inputs and you're only looking at what we call the macronutrients like NPK, you know, calcium, things like that. The, um, you're not looking at all of them. There's 52 essential minerals and nutrients that are needed for healthy soil and healthy food. And we're typically in conventional agriculture only looking at three or four. Only in recent decades have we started to look at, mi uh, like micronutrients, right? Hmm. But we're, these chemicals that we're spraying on our food, whether they're for fertilization, whether they're for herb herbicide where we're killing other weeds or they're for pest, they're all toxins. They're all poisons. And we are basing, basically waging war against nature. And it's not sustainable. It's definitely not regenerative. And it's toxic. And it has less and less nutrients and minerals each year. And the consolidation of our food, food service and our food production is really one of the other large issues. Another issue you have is huge companies like giant multinational corporations they own these farms and they own this type of production everything is consolidated so things are now traveling really 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 far before they're getting to us so they have a large carbon footprint it goes on and on man like once you start to get into this like it, it's it's crazy and mm -hmm. that's why when i look at small scale diversified agriculture as a chef as an eater i want the most delicious seasonal local clean food that I can possibly get. And as a chef, if I can get a hold of that, then now I'm in a good spot. Mm -hmm. And so that's what Epiphany Farm set out to do. We set out, well, maybe we can grow it all. Let's try it. Fairbury Furniture in Fairbury, Illinois has added over 7,000 square feet to their showroom, and that means more selection for you. Why wait for your furniture? You can buy anything on the showroom floor and take it home today. So hop in the car and take the short drive to Fairbury Furniture, where customers love their selection, pricing, and their take-it-home-today power. So many Bloomington Normal residents have made Fairbury Furniture their favorite furniture store, just 26 minutes away in downtown Fairbury. Hurry down to Fairbury Furniture, where the furniture rocks.
I love pizza, especially pizza from Marshalloni's Pizza in Fairbury, Illinois. Experience Marshalloni's Pizza and their famous cheese nuggets for an amazing price when you order today. If you call them up at 815-692-4602 between 4 and 5 p.m. and order a pizza, you will get the second pizza of equal or lesser value for free. Restrictions apply. You can even pick up that order after the 4 to 5 window and still get that happy hour discount. As a pizza connoisseur myself, I will proudly say that my favorite barbecue chicken pizza comes from here, so check them out. 815 Six nine two four six zero two and pick it up at four hundred five East Locust Street in Fairbury. They're open seven days a week from four to nine p.m. Just what you're saying here with the amount of chemicals being injected into the ground in order so that it doesn't die because what used to take care of the ground was these animals, but we have to put them in buildings now and make a city out of them. Just as you're saying, all the problems that come from that. You're no oncologist, maybe as far as I know. Uh, you're not a cancer expert, but. Looking in the last few decades, there is, while there is a better rate of death from cancer, meaning less people are dying from cancer, more people are getting it, mm. which means more people are getting it, but technology is so good that we're less percentage of them are dying from it. But cancer, people get cancer more often now. Do right. you think there is a connection with the chemicals that you're talking about and the food that we're eating and consuming, the practices behind the development of these foods on shelves and even the foods in restaurants? Do you think there is a connection with that rise, albeit gradual rise, of cancer and those farming practices? 100%. 100%. Absolutely. The the business side of it is mind-boggling. Like, that's... That's the, like, in my way, like, it's the industrialization, the corporate economy, like, there, it's, it's, it's crazy business model. Like, that's, I don't know. I don't, it, it's like, we don't even want to really go there because it's like, it's just a waste of time. The world is a very, very wild place. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give you a quick example. Please. About eight or nine years ago, I was asked to speak at a conference in California. This was a conference, um, at the CIA, which is the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York. That's where I went. That's their main main location. This is their campus in California, in um, I think it's Yonville, very very close to the restaurant. I was talking about French Laundry, and so I was there speaking, and I was doing a demonstration. I was I I harvested all my vegetables. I harvested all the tomatoes. I brought a bunch of herbs. I shipped them with me on the airplane. I they put me up at a hotel. I did a, a, a like a. 20 minute presentation about Epiphany Farms, what we're doing, all the things we're trying to accomplish. I demonstrated a course. I made a vinaigrette in front of them and I cooked for them. It was, I was like a part of the entertainment side. This was a bunch of, um, um, large corporations that were sending, um, affiliates of their company, employees of their company, uh, different sponsors. And they were all mingling and there was hundreds of, of participants. They are probably every participant paid a thousand dollars to be there. And I was here just kind of sharing my story. The reason why I was invited was because I was at the James Beard Awards in Chicago and I saw the president of the CIA and I went up to him and I said, Hey, and I was like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an alum. Thank you so much for everything that you taught me. Uh, here's what I'm up to. I threw him my business card and then he reached back out to me a couple weeks later. He's like, it's awesome what you're doing. Go to this conference. And I was like, all right, cool. So I went and spoke at this conference. Anyways, I'm at the, uh, I'm at the like uh, reception of this conference at the end of it and I met a gentleman who told me that he was there on behalf of the U.S. Uh, Beef Association. And I was like, oh, no way. Like, what, what, you know, I'm into, I'm a farmer. Like, I'm into growing food. Like, what, what, you know, why are you here? He's like, oh, well, we, we just created a documentary, uh, called Cowspiracy. And I was yeah, like, what? I've watched it. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, the, the purpose of this documentary is to debut, to like dispute or debuke everything that was, um, that was in a documentary called Food Inc. 
So there's this in, independent documentary that comes out called Food Inc. And in it, it this Food Inc. was developed kind of after Omnivore's Dilemma. And they dive into it real, real hard. And it's really, really cool. It's, it's an independent documentary. It's very, very unbiased, in my opinion. It goes to some of the change makers and the practitioners around the world. It exposes the industrialization of the food system, right? So the U.S. Beef Association basically has a documentary creator create entertainment to dispute entertainment that came up independently and then outlives it on the platforms. And the way I mean that is that because Food Inc. was independent, eventually the financing ran out, so it's no longer on Netflix. Which one is still on Netflix? The one that was sponsored by the U.S. Beef Association that's called Cowspiracy. So, you know, the information out there is also misleading and false and sometimes manipulated. And so you really don't know what to believe. I think that a lot of these large companies around the you know, 60s and 70s realized that they didn't need to convince everybody that one way was right or wrong. They just needed to allow for enough information to be out there for people to have two different opinions, mm-hmm. which is kind of crazy. But in my mind, as a chef, you know, the proof is in the pudding. If I crack an egg that came from a pasture that was raised on organic feed that was in a healthy, clean environment, and I crack that egg into a pan... The, the yolk is beaming. The albumin, the white is, is stiff and firm. If I were to make a meringue or, you know, anything with, with the egg whites utilizing that protein, it would be the most delicious, firm, awesome souffle type thing ever, right? Mm-hmm. If I take one from the Walmart grocery store stel- shelf and I crack it into a pan, the yolk is pale. The albumin <laughs> is flat. If I make a meringue with it or try to make a souffle out of it, it doesn't souffle as much. It doesn't have the same thing that the egg has on pasture. An egg is not just an egg. You are not what you eat, but you are what you eat eats. And industry makes it very, very, very difficult Mm -hmm. for the things that you're buying to know what it ate at the location of production does that yes it does yes so it's hard to know really truly the where your food is coming from what it is ingesting exactly or or, or how many nutrients are in it right right? or how healthy that soil was or how clean that air was or how clean that water was for people that want to eat very very clean the way that it sounds like you eat Mm -hmm. how do you advise that they go into grocery stores what do they look for well, I like organics is a good start, starting with organic. So when you can buy organic and when it's feasible, absolutely pick to go organic, right? But conventional agriculture, conventional organic agriculture, the type of food that's going to be available at a big box store, for instance, is going to be using organic certifica- certification, but they're still going to have a decent amount of chemical inputs to control pest, fertility, weeds, things like that. So... The most important thing is probably to go to local spots like a farmer's market or a grocery store that's actually buying from local farms and buy from people in the area that you know and you trust their practices, not buy from big, large corporations. So the Walmart organic section might not be as trustworthy? Exactly. Like, for instance, when organics first came out, organic, the word is owned by the United States government, right? And so you can't call it organic. And for the record, Epiphany Farms is not an organic certified location. Right. It's not USDA certified organic. Right. Because that means the United States government saying... The United States government um, owns and has protections for the word. And then there's only a handful of certifiers that are businesses that are legally allowed to give you the label of organic. You have to pay the certifier to do that. And the certifier comes in, they audit 
all of your practices and you have to show them everything that you bought. You have to show them all the seeds that you bought. You have to show them what they, they look at everything. You have to pay them to do that. When I first looked at organic certification, it's like thousands of dollars for us to have it initially. And it's also a ton of administrative time. Like I don't, we, we, I like to say I'm beyond organic, but like we have such a, a local connection and we're selling to both mostly about 95% of our food goes directly to our own restaurants. And so I don't need to waste the time to bring in a third party certifier because we do it our own way. We don't, I, I have to buy another piece of equipment. Or I have to invest in our farm or we, you know, the restaurants need to be upgraded. So it's like organic certification is kind of on the bucket list, but it over time, it's more and more bought out every year. I mean, I can still buy toxic chemicals that are certified organic and I wouldn't want to drink those things. I certainly don't want to put them on my food. You mm -hmm. know, they still kill things, right? So for the listeners and the viewers, are you willing to go on record, Ken, mm -hmm. say that Epiphany Farms and all the food that it sells is organic? No, it's not. We're it's not, not. We're not certified organic. We have organic practices. So all the food that I grow could become certified organic, mm -hmm. but I don't pay a certifier. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, yeah. But, we, but you were kind of saying that it might, you're beyond organic. Well, well, would organic people well, eat your food and be okay with it? Oh yeah, hundred percent. Okay. Absolutely, absolutely. But the, also the restaurant, you know, when we buy food, we don't only buy organic. It's very difficult for us to only buy organic and then still have a price point that people can afford. I was gonna say because I'm like organic stuff is usually pretty darn expensive, but your place's food is extremely it's very fair for the price well thank you appreciate that we're uh you know there was a time back in the day when epiphany farms was like a little bit more uh expensive in the beginning it was called station 220 and i can remember when we were really focused on like tasting menus and high class you know the servers wore vests things mm -hmm. like that like people would open up the check and be like whoa it's like kind of expensive and so when we kind of rebranded it was about like eight years ago or so we were like all right let's try to do our best to make it you know affordable as much as possible because we we want people to enjoy it if we don't have a lot of guests coming through the door um, then it's not going to work so i okay on that note <laughs> i have been to harmony uh, korean barbecue me and my friends went and we were blown away it was when i think of your place of course you think of epiphany farms you think of all the places the restaurants that you have it is truly delicious and i'll say that this is not sponsored by epiphany Farms. <laughs> it is unbelievably delicious i believe epiphany farms restaurant is the number one restaurant in bloomington normal according to reviews on all sorts of different places i think google reviews has you as number one and also some restaurant review or trip advisor awesome. some has you as number one it's incredible it's delicious and i want to ask a little more about how you make it so delicious <laughs> but it's the technique it's mm -hmm. it's uh you know it's high quality culinary technique it's it's gastronomy and the, you know, the owners, the practitioners, the managers, like we're not trying to be the best restaurant in Bloomington normal. Mm -hmm. We're trying to be the best restaurant we can be in the world. Uh -huh. And that's a completely different mindset. And, um, you know, we've, we've been to some of the best restaurants in the world and that's what we look up to. And that's what we want to be. I, I think our restaurants could be a hell of a lot better in all honesty. Mm -hmm. Um, but we're doing a good job and we got a really good team and we're really, really lucky that we're in a community that supports us. The best sushi in central Illinois <laughs> is Anju above sushi that I've had a lot of sushi and that stuff was unbelievable. And they slice it up right in front of you it's, too. Yeah. It's open kitchen. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, like I, I think we're probably the only spot in Bloomington that like, for instance, if you get a California roll, right, everywhere serves imitation crab. 
It's not real crap, right? It's it's what? Yeah, <laughs> it's all imitation, right? But Epiphany Farms, Andre above, like we don't buy imitation. Like we have, there's no preservatives, there's no artificial ingredients, there's no dyes, there's there's nothing that's like even preserved. We try our best to like serve healthy, clean food. And the other thing is, is that you know we're connected to our food. We taste it. We we make sure that it tastes right. You know, we make sure that the salinity is there, that there's enough fat, there's enough acid, right? Right? It's got richness. It it has saltiness. It has bitterness. It has sweetness. Like you need balance in food. And so, like, you know, all the sauces are homemade. All the bread is homemade. Everything is made from scratch. Everything is tasted. We eat our own food. We grow our own food. Like that's, that's where do you get your food. meat from? We a lot of the meat is conventional. We do have to buy a lot of like. When I say conventional, I just mean it's not certified organic and it's like corn fed. So, but we also feature a lot of, of local meat as well. We raise all the chicken, we raise all the pork. Um, so like when I say convent, the meat that we're buying would be like, um, some of the beef, the tuna, the salmon. Um, yeah, no fish the, farms around here probably. Right. Now there are, there are some ways like in the future we would love to be able to get like local bluegill and local fish, but there's, we have a long way to go before we can have that type of sustainable production. But it is the, a dream of ours to be able to do a lot of that stuff as well. Right now, globally at Epiphany Farms restaurant, we produce about 25% of the food. So we'll sell upwards to $300,000 worth of food to the restaurant. And the restaurant's buying like $1.2, $1.3 million in food a year. I see. So, yeah. Interesting. Those are big numbers. Yeah. We also, you know, we buy from like local dairy, like Kilgus Mm. Farms, you know, we. Hometown Fairbury. Yep. We got, um. Slagle meats at all? We buy, we buy some Slagle. Now, Slagle does beef that I'd like to feature at the restaurants. Um, they also do pork and chicken, but we raise all of our own pork. We raise all of our own chicken. Now, Harmony, we can't supply enough pork for Harmony. So Harmony buys pork, but we're the farm team, Jacob, um, the farm is growing a lot. We've, we added five buildings last year. Um, we've been really increasing our production. And so the goal is to be able to provide the vast majority of our food. And I do think that in the next like four or five years, we'll be upwards to 50% of the food that we buy is actually coming from our own farm. Which okay. Is now cool. you said the buildings on the farm, mm-hmm. we were just talking about how putting the animals in the buildings is part of the problem. Right. Uh, when you say your animals in these buildings, are they in these buildings for good? Do they ever get out of the buildings? Uh, sorry if I'm putting you they're, in a weird spot. No, but. they're not. They're not buildings for animals. I mean, some of them kind of are. So um, I think what you're referring to, what I was referring to, is called a CAFO, a confined animal feeding operation. And this is the way that most of the poultry and swine is mm-hmm. raised and most of the beef is raised in the country. Um, that's not how we do it at our farm. Right now in the winter, we do have a building uh, that all the animals right now, we have some pigs in there. We have the ducks. We have the laying hens. Um, there's some uh, peacocks that are in there. And they come in for shelter in the winter. They have heated waters. Um, it's still cold in there. It's not heated. But they can get out on pasture and they, they leave. We raise the broiler chickens, which are the meat chickens that we eat. We only raise those six months out of the year. We only raise those when they can be on pasture. Um, the laying hens, they live through the winter. All the pigs are actually right now in the forest. Uh, we uh, have um, we raise about a hundred hogs at a, a year at the farm, and those are all uh, free range. We got 
Uh, J- <laughs> Jacob makes like huts and we insulate them with hay. And there's these little like almost like cellars or bunkers the animals go into. They're super comfortable. So they live they're, in a great life, actually. It yeah, sounds like. absolutely. They're not trapped in a concrete building. No, no. That's so like incredible. The, the buildings that we built at the farm uh, this last year, we built a new pack and wash shed for all the vegetables. Uh, we built a walk, big walk-in freezer and walk-in refrigerator, a new uh, farm office. We built a new farm store. Um, we added a catering garage behind the event barn for doing the weddings and the events. Been there. Incredible. Gorgeous. Stunning view. I've never seen it. I didn't know it existed in central <laughs> right. Illinois. I didn't know you could overlook much of anything in Illinois. Right. But uh, you certainly do at that place. It's, it's a dream spot. And that is a dream come true, uh, that, that location. We've been at that farm mm-hmm. now, I think, for six years um that i that that farm is the impetus of epiphany farms because that was the that was my my home when i was in high school so i lived there and i fell in love with the landscape and then when i went on my journey and uh, decided to come home i i always dreamed of buying that so when about six years ago when the company was able to buy the epiphany farms estate it was like all right dreams do come true this is great Mm-hmm. So yeah, we're, we're there. Um, I was able to live there for a couple of years in the beginning. And then I knew that it was going to be successful and get busier. I'd want to move. So, um, we, we use that as a, uh, a wedding venue and an Airbnb and it, it's a bed and breakfast basically. Mm-hmm. So people can stay there and they spend the whole weekend there and they do the rehearsals and receptions and all their, you know, their wedding weekend stuff. And we're adding amenities for, for the groomsmen and for the, the, the guests. It's, it's just, it's cool, man. It's a fun, it's a fun property. I can see by the smile on your face and the tone of your voice that you love what you do and you're having fun doing it. Mm. And I apologize yeah. for jumping around to both you and the listeners, but we were talking about how you even came to be doing this in the first place. And we left off, you were talking about you were in Las Vegas. Yeah. Can you tell me, can you finish the story a little bit about how you went from there to starting Epiphany Farms? Oh, yeah. Yes. So, um, okay. So I was at the Geese of Wa. I read Omnivore's Dilemma. I had an epiphany, a sudden moment of insight that the future of food uh, could be fixed with the dinner table if we went back to the land and started to recreate these these more harmonious and holistic systems. Um, I was still going to UNLV, needing to, to get my degree. I started writing the business plan. I started telling all my friends about Epiphany Farms. I started to uh, convince them. I started to research it. I started to go to the best farms around the world. Uh, my best friend at the time, Marcel, I went to school with him in New York. He moved to Vegas. He was working at another high-end restaurant. He was on Top Chef. He was on season two. Um, during Top Chef, before he went on the show, we trained together. I sharpened his knives and we like got him ready for the show. And he went on, he crushed it. He got to the final four. Um, they came and filled, filmed him in his apartment. And I um, was sharpening his knives. I was on one of the episodes. <laughs> Long story short, then season three rolls around. They do the casting call at Guy Savoie. So I was there to open the restaurant for him. And I see like my former teacher from the CIA trying to get on the show, right? I'm just like, Jesus. So we, <laughs> we cooked the judge, we cooked the interviewers lunch, me and my friend hung. And after lunch and after we cooked for him, after they interviewed all these people for the show, they came into the kitchen and like, one of you guys want to be on the show? And I looked at hung. I'm like, hung. Yeah. You got it. And I knew it. And so sure enough, he got on the show. Oh, you did. And he, you didn't. And he won. And Whoa. So, yeah. So he wins a hundred thousand dollars. 
And uh, so we're super excited about this, right? He comes back. He's under, he's supposed to be confidential about it, but obviously I'm his best friend, so he tells me. And uh, he ends up winning $100,000. He signs a contract for a restaurant in New York, and I moved in Manhattan to help him open this restaurant. And so we we opened up, we took over a restaurant called Solo uh, in, in Midtown Manhattan. And uh, me, Marcel, and Hung were for, there for the summer. And I was telling him, I was like, I got to go back to Vegas. I got three classes left to graduate. And I was at this point, I'm like, Epiphany Farms, where is that? Because they were, what happened was they were doing all the food and wine festivals around the country and they needed to bring a sous chef to do these big dinners at these food and wine festivals. So they took me. So all of a sudden I was going to the show in Aspen. I was going to the show in South Beach. I was going to the show in Chicago. I went all over New York with them. And everywhere I went, I saw the industry was going towards local, seasonal, organic, regenerative cuisine. And so then it was like really solidified in my mind. I was like, okay, this is the future. And when I come home, it's like 10 years behind. No one's talking about it. Like th- this can have a lot of impact in my hometown. I was like, I can go back there. Uh, it was 2008. The recession hits, financial collapse. All my friends that bought houses in Vegas end up having to like go through fo- foreclosures, things like that. And I was like, man, what better time to disappear and go back to the land than now? Like I'm going. So I had uh, somehow come up with $20,000. How somehow? Well, I'd, I saved it and then I borrowed against it. So I had like 11 grand saved up in the bank. I was willing to do that. So I went to friends and family. I was like, hey, can you borrow me some money? I was like, I got it. I'll, I'll guarantee it. I'll get it paid back to you like in a year. I was like, but I want to start this farm. I need to rent land. I got to buy a greenhouse. I got to buy chickens. I got to buy pigs. I got to buy equipment. And I need a, I need a partner. I got to find an employee to help me. So I walked um, in December of 2008 for graduation. Me and Anam had met that semester. We were in two of the three classes together. And she got hired with Samsung, moved back to Seoul, Korea. I started Epiphany Farms. And then I um, got Mike Mustard to move here in March. I flew to Korea to ask Nanam to marry me. I spent a, a month with her family, convinced her to move here. How she, old were you again? I was 25. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I, Nanam moved here in uh, June. By July, we incorporated the business. And then I got Chef Stu to move here in September. When Chef Stu showed up, we ran out of money. We had already spent it all. We were only making like 150 bucks selling at the Downs Farmer's Market. I was uh, apprenticing for Dave Barron, that farm I told you about. I, w- I went to his farm, was studying there and working there during the day. And I'd go back to my farm, work there all night. And then I realized, I was like, we're going to go out of business unless we start like making more money. Let's start cooking for people. So we started doing, I started doing, uh, I became a cooking instructor at the Garlic Press in, in Uptown Normal. Mm-hmm. And then I uh, started doing dinner parties. And I, we did, once Stu joined, we did 115 dinner parties in one year. Uh, we were on the front page of the Chicago Tribune, a four page spread. Um, the, they sent a reporter, Kevin Pang, to come live at the farm for the week and document what we were doing. Yeah. The article was called Epiphany or Bust. Is this the future of food or is this guy crazy? It was basically <laughs> the article. And, uh, so we got put us on the map. We were pushing really hard to open a restaurant in downtown Bloomington. I was going around talking to banks, trying to get investors. And then uh, we ended up consulting and then taking over Central Station. We we walked into Central Station. Uh, Chad Ellington was the owner of the business in the building. And uh, we were like, we're going to turn your restaurant around. And if we do, we want to buy it. And that's what we did. 
Choosing insurance can be complicated and daunting. That's why you need to call Pam Deaton with Health Markets. Pam will help you with all of your insurance needs, including health, life, vision, dental, and disability insurance. She's consistently been one of Health Markets' top national agents over the years and continues to earn great reviews from her clients. If you or a loved one needs to find the right insurance plan, you're in the right hands with Pam. Call her at 309-287-2518 to see how she can help you today. If you've been living with an aching back, debilitating imbalances, or any physical discomfort and just want to get back to living a fit and happy life, look no further than In Motion Fitness Center and Outpatient Therapy at Fairview Haven in Fairbury, Illinois. Our highly skilled therapy team will guide you through proven and effective exercises to help you regain your strength, movement, and mobility, all with our renowned level of love and care. Live your best life. Call our therapy team at 815-692-6724 to find out how we can serve you today. Wow. Wow. When did you take, how old were you when you took over? 27. 27 years old. Yeah. And you said you were looking for investors. Did the bank give you a loan or did someone invest in you or people? No. It never happened. What? So what, how do you get the money? um, Well, we worked it off. So the restaurant was losing money. And so we stopped losing money and then we started making money. And then of the money we made, we bought it. Are you kidding me? Uh-uh. You must have been making good money then. Oh, no, it's taken a long time. Right. It was 10 years. It took us 10 years. Yeah. And the, the plan was to make what is now Epiphany Restor- or Epiphany Farms. That was a plan the entire time. Yeah. This, for 10 years. Everything that we've done to this point, like I, not the specifics of it, like not specifically like the location of Harmony or the bakery and pickle or things like that. But when we look at the, the initial business plan of Epiphany Farms, the goal was to have a uh, multi unit restaurant group supplied by the farm. And it, it actually in the business plan, it was that we would be in Bloomington. So we'd be regionally located to like five major markets within two and a half hours. And so the goal was that we would be close to Chicago, Madison, Wisconsin, Indianapolis, St. Louis, and that we would be a, a central hub. Over time, we've really grown and valued being in one community. As I, I had consulted at a restaurant in Springfield for some time, and I realized, I was like, you know, being home and being local and being in one vicinity. So actually, if you look at, if you draw a line between the farm and our restaurants, they all line up on the drive. So I, I, the, I can leave mm-hmm. the farm. I can leave the farm on the road, and in five minutes, I can be at my house. In six more minutes, I can be at Harmony. In five more minutes, I can be at Epiphany. And in three minutes, I can be at Bakery and Pickle. And that's not only my drive pretty much every day, but it's also like our deliveries. So our deliveries from the restaurant, a farm, can go that way, and they can not only drop off food, but they can also pick up food waste and compost and bring back fertility. Mm. Wow. Yeah. It's an incredible cool. operation that it's, you are running. It is very cool. It's inspiring how how fired up you are about it, how passionate you are about it. The story up to this point has been incredible, fascinating. As we wind down this conversation, I want to ask kind of a two-part question. What is your goal, if you can say your, your goal, maybe it's your team's goal, in the next five years and then maybe the next 20 years? Mm-hmm. What are those two time frame goals for you? Okay. So I think the next five years, it's not necessarily about expansion as much as it is about refinement. 
we've acquired the land, we've acquired the buildings, we've opened up the restaurants. Now it's about actually getting in the trenches and making sure that they are well-polished and great examples of hospitality. That's number one. First five, next five years, I think, is really about just polishing what we've been able to build so far and, um, you know, continuing to monetize the farm as much as possible, more specifically the education and the farm visits and the tourism. So not being a local destination, but being a, you know, regional, national, global destination. That's the next five years. 20 years from now, I think my kids, uh, Clover, Confrey, and Morris, they're uh, 10, 8, and 6. I think, uh, you know, five to seven years from now, I want to take it to new new levels outside of this market. That's when I'd like to maybe go to some third world countries and divine some holistic agricultural systems, um, be an example for great community, be an example for integrated regenerative agriculture, and uh, hopefully teach and consult around the world. Change the world a little bit. I, we That's been the goal since day one. Absolutely. Like, we, we really... When we founded Epiphany Farms, we actually were one of Illinois' first B corporations, and we did change our bylaws to include stakeholders ahead of shareholders. And so the future of business needs to be businesses doing good. Um, making great economy is what I call it. It's like um, creating business, um, doing it for the right regenerative, sustainable reasons, um, creating profit, and then investing that profit in the community and leaving the land a better place for the next generation. That that's that's the goal. And I think by us proving that we exist, um, we're hopefully inspiring and encouraging a lot of people around the world to also try to do what they want to do. Now, how about the big meta goal then? What would you like to see happen in the world if more people thought the way you did and implemented the practices that you do? What would the world become? What would become as far as the environment, eating and farming and all that. What could the world look like in your utopia? Okay, so the way that I see the future, let me compare it to me taking over a restaurant. Let's just say I need to take over this restaurant tonight and the service, it's been horrible. I gotta, I can only, maybe I can serve 500 people at this restaurant, but tonight I'm gonna only focus on 50. I'm gonna have 50 people in this restaurant. Tomorrow, I'm gonna do 60. Next week, we'll get up to 100. Three years, we'll be doing 500 a night. Every single day, we're going to refine things, we're going to practice, we're going to get better systems, we're going to get better training, we're going to make it a little bit better, right? But the population, the amount of people in our dining room is going to continue to increase. Well, when we get to 500 and we're at complete occupancy and we have a good service, well executed, the next day we do 500, for the first time, we actually see refinement because we got completely full and now we started to refine our systems. We Before, we were just fitting more people in the dining room. But over time, once we get to it, now we're just going to be about refining our system. Well, in the world, we have grown exponentially as a species. Unbelievable how fast we've, our population has grown. But population growth is actually slowing down. Most of the developed world is now seeing population decline. Places like Japan, China, we have governments paying people to have kids because they're not going to have workers in 40 years. It's mm -hmm. kind of mind-boggling, right? So it, around 2050, supposedly... Uh, the global population is going to stabilize at about 9.2 billion people, right? That's what I've heard. So for the first time ever, we will have the same amount of people coming into our restaurant as we did the previous year. It's never happened before. I, I believe that the tides are changing, and when it's going to happen in the second half of this century, we're going to enter an era of refinement. 
I think the second half of this century is going to be the very first time we can actually be feeding less people than the previous year. And we are going to be able to look at all of these great examples that are popping up around the world. And we are going to have a much more sustainable, healthy and regenerative environment, regenerative environment. But we have a lot of things that have to change in the next 30 years to make that happen. Fascinating stuff, Ken. It has been a true honor talking to you. I'm so glad we could make this happen. Thank you. You're a good man doing really good things, really impressive and inspiring things. And I just thank you so much for your time today. And I look forward to the next time I eat at one of your many restaurants. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. I really, really appreciate this. Of course. Thank you. For sure.